Brooks just asked, asked if we're done. And, uh, <laughs> I think that sounds like a great idea, especially on my text tonight. Um, Preaching one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament uh, tonight. It's real perfect for Valentine's Day. Uh, that would be a great way to kick off uh, the first Sunday in a new place. So here we go. Second Timothy, First Timothy, uh, chapter two, uh, starting with verse eight. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty. Self-control, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire, with what is proper for women who profess godliness. Good works. Little women learn quietly, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. They continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The word of the Lord. Amen. I listened to a sermon not that long ago, not this text, but a, uh, another controversial text. And uh, as soon as the pastor got done reading uh, the passage, he says, I felt spontaneously moved to move to preach a different text. I'm not going to do that tonight, but I am going to go on uh, vacation tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, we, you know, we have been in 1 Timothy, when you preach through books of the Bible, uh, like it's the norm, not, not every, not constantly in our church, not every Sunday, but it's the normal diet of uh, our worship together. Uh, you come upon passages like this, and um, you don't preach through books of the Bible, this doesn't happen. Uh, you can skip these uh, week after week, month after month, year after year. Uh, while you guys have access to your Bibles all week, and you read these texts, you're like, I wonder what my church thinks about it. Well... They even talk about these things. So we are. We are talking about this one. And it provokes strong emotions, strong opinions, and well-meaning Christians across, even within denominations, disagree on how to interpret this text. I think part of the reason uh, for all the disagreement, all the controversy, all the strong emotions, all the strong opinions is that it offends our modern sensibilities. That's okay. If my Bible never did offend you, then it would be evidence that you're a finished product, that you don't have any room for growth. Moreover, if Jesus can't offend you, then maybe you've made Jesus into your image instead of seeing that he is trying to make you into his. And the process of being made in his image is difficult, it's painful, and requires that he offend you. Another reason this passage is difficult is because it contains valid interpretational difficulties. Interpreting the Bible can be very difficult. It's difficult because there's a wide variety of genres. I mean, if you went home and you read, uh, you read uh, Ezekiel, if you read, uh, if you read Revelation, they're apocalyptic. You have poetry like Song of Solomon or the Psalms and poetry. 
And it's supposed to be interpreted with some level of abstraction, whereas you've got the historical narratives and even, to some extent, the epistles that have a more literal interpretation. That makes the Bible difficult. Lots of genres. It's also difficult because it's an ancient document. I mean, the New Testament was written 2,000 years ago. The Old Testament was written even longer ago than that. It's written in multiple languages, none of which are native to us. Most of us, I think. Maybe there's a native Hebrew speaker among us. That's the Old Testament. It's got a little bit of Aramaic in it. And then you come to the New Testament, it's written in Greek. So it's important that when we read texts like the one we just read, that we don't jump to conclusions too quickly just because they distress us. Recently, I heard a story from a British woman. This British woman, uh, she married an Italian-American who was from New Jersey. And one of the first times that she went to New Jersey to visit her in-laws, uh, she's looking through the kitchen window. And when she looks through the kitchen window, she sees her husband having a conversation with her mother-in-law. And in this conversation, she, they can't make out what they're saying, but there's raised voices. They have bright red faces. Their arms are waving around. Their noses are just inches apart. Her mother-in-law has a knife in hand because she's cutting up garlic. And she said the last thing she wanted to do was to enter into World War III and be skewered herself. So she stayed out of it. She just watched what was happening. And later on in the evening, the mother-in-law wasn't around. And she asked her husband with very concerned tones about the conversation that he was having with his mother he responded, I have no idea what you're talking about. We love each other very much. And we had a perfectly pleasant conversation. That's just how Italian-Americans talk to one another. And she talked about how she had it all wrong, even though culturally she was pretty near to the situation. I mean, she speaks English. She's a contemporary of the people that she saw had this conversation she travels a lot, so she knows that British culture isn't the only culture that exists. She watches American TV, so she should be able to interpret American interactions. And she asked a really good question at the end of telling this story. She said, if I was unable to interpret this situation, how much more do we need to slow down as we interpret our Bibles? When you come to the Bible, there's always two things, at least two things going on. You have the cultural setting and you have the transcendent truth. This is the glory of the Bible. God always speaks to us in a historical, particular setting. No word of God is spoken in a cultural vacuum. Every word has a cultural context. It's great that God did not give us some transcendent truth from a distance, but he stooped down to us, to our level, in a specific time, in a specific place. But this creates interpretive problems for us. It can be really hard for us to know what's the universal transcendent truth and what's the local context of the original hearers. And so how do we handle this cultural element of God's word? Well, there are three options. As one scholar put it, he said "There's well, the first one is that you can enthrone the cultural form. And this would say that when you come to the Bible, because it's God's word, you can't tamper with the cultural form in any way. It's this rigid literalism. So take our text for an example. If you enthrone the cultural form and you look at verse 8, 
you throw the form, you would say that men must always lift their hands in prayer when they are in public worship. From the time they walk in until the time they leave, their hands are raised. Well, that'd be really hard for us as Presbyterians. We're having a hard time even learning to clap. <laughs> if we use this kind of rigid literalism, in verses 9 and 10, it means that women cannot braid their hair or wear jewelry. And then verses 11 and 12, that there are no circumstances where women must teach men. That's the first option, and it's a dangerous one. The second one's a dangerous one, too. The dangerous one, instead of enthroning the cultural form, it, 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 it wants to dismiss the cultural form and the truth. And the thinking about this goes that since God's word is so old and it's so, and it's so enshrouded in its own culture, that now it's irrelevant because it happened so long ago and its culture is so different from our own. That's a dangerous option, too. And so what we must do as we approach the scriptures is that we've got to discern between what is God's essential revelation and what is the cultural expression. Let's just take washing feet. John 13, Jesus washes, washes his disciples' feet. We don't obey that literally. Maybe you have a time or two. We don't obey it literally. We know that there's a, there's a meaning to that text, that there's an essential meaning, and the essential meaning is that there's no service that's too menial. You can park cars before church. You can work the nursery. You can greet. I'm not laying on too thick, am I? Um, you can wash dishes. You can clean toilets. As long as you do it with love. Alright, so that's the whole intro <laughs> to this earth. I've never really gotten to our text yet. But I think it's important that we have that as our backdrop. And when we get to our text, you see three commands. The first one you see is to the men. The second one, verse 9, 10, is to the women about their physical appearance. And then verses 11, 15 is about the relationship to one another in the church. All right, so verse 8. Verse 8 comes on the heels of what we looked at last week in verses 1 to 7. We saw in verse 1 that Paul's talking about public worship. This was last week. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And now when he comes to verse 8, he's still talking about public worship when he says, Men in every place should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So remember, we've got to figure out what's the cultural piece here and what's the transcendent truth that we are to take. Well, the cultural piece is raising hands. I mean, it's a physical posture. It's assumed for worship. There's lots of physical postures that we see in the scriptures. We see clapping. We see standing. We see kneeling. We see sitting. We see raising your arms. And these vary across cultures. And if this is taken as the transcendent truth, then like I said earlier, then the men have to raise their hands the entirety of the corporate worship service. But this isn't the transcendent truth. The transcendent truth is in verse 8, and how men should pray. And how they should pray is that they should pray in holiness and in love, as opposed to praying in anger and in quarreling. 
So it seems like the church in Ephesus has a bunch of men who need to take anger management classes. And I think many of us, many of us men, should join them there. In fact, I think the reason this passage is really tough for a lot of women is because they've encountered so many angry men in their life. At the root of every angry man is an insecure man. Many women have experienced these insecure men's anger, especially when they challenge their lack of holiness. What's really sad is that many men have used this text to manipulate women, even abuse them. So as men, we should do our own work around anger. We should point the finger at ourselves before we start requiring anything from a woman. And I think if that begins to happen, then the rest of this text might fall in place. We get to verses 9 and 10. We talk about women adorning themselves. And verse 9 starts with the word likewise. Meaning that Paul's still talking about public worship. He's not talking about anger and quarreling here to the women. Rather, He's talking to them about the spirit of their age, which I think happens to be the spirit of our age. That women themselves and men just fan the flame in treating women as ornamental, as mere decorations. That there's this unhealthy emphasis on appearance. So here's the transcendent truth in verses 9 and 10. It's culturally unbound. And it's that women should value their good works over their appearance. And so should men. It's that moral beauty takes precedence over physical beauty. It's that beauty of body is less important than beauty of character. It's not that physical beauty is important. It's not that beauty of body is not important. It's not that appearance isn't important. It's just that what's inside takes the priority. That's the transcendent part of this command. But the cultural piece is around Clothing and hairstyle and jewelry, those change from culture to culture. Then you come to verses 11 to 15. This is the juicy part, right? This is the, the moneymaker right here. And there are two pieces that we see here as men and women, how they're supposed to relate to one another. First one is about women are to be quiet and learn and not teach. The second one is that women are to submit and not have authority. So in the first two, verse 8, we did the cultural and transcendent piece. Verse 9 and 10, we did the cultural and transcendent piece. And so now we come to this one and we expect there to be a cultural and transcendent piece. Some people say that verses 11 to 15, that it's all cultural. That the situation in Ephesus is unique to Ephesus. And that what's going on in Ephesus is that women are untrained and they're being obnoxious. And so now Paul's got to come in with a heavy stick. Others say that there's a cultural piece and a transcendent piece. The transcendent piece is around authority and the cultural piece is around the teaching. Well, this week I, I could have read more than this, but I read seven explanations about what people thought about verses 11 to 15. And in some ways, I left more confused than when I started. <laughs> but let me tell you uh, where I landed. 
And first of all, I think the important part of interpreting the scriptures is to find out where it is in its literary contexts. Its literary context, like I've already mentioned a couple times, is that we're talking about public worship here. That's what's going on in verse 1. That's what's going on in verse 8. And even verse 9 with the word likewise. This isn't talking about every aspect of the life of the church. It's certainly not talking about every aspect of life. And this squares with what we see in the New Testament. We do see women teach. We see women teaching younger women, Titus 2. We see women teaching children, and you've got Timothy's grandmother and mother who teach him, 2 Timothy 1. You have Priscilla, who's with her husband Aquila, and they are teaching Apollos, a man, a prolific teacher in Acts 18. But none of these venues are corporate worship. And so this is, so this command we see here at 1 Timothy 2 fits. But the very next passage that we see in this letter is one on elders. It's about the qualifications of elders. And there's another place we see qualifications of elders in Titus 1. Those are the two places we see it. When you put those two together, you'll see that Paul requires husbands who have one wife to be elders. He requires elders to be able to teach. He requires elders to be able to manage the church. And so that lines up again with what we see here in 1 Timothy 2. The elders are the ones in the church who have the responsibility to teach and have authority. Now, that's all important. The literary context is important, but Paul gives a reason in verses 13 and 14 for the commands he gives in 11 and 12. And the reason he gives refers back to Adam and Eve. And it refers back to Adam and Eve in a timeless, divinely established paradigm from Genesis 2. And what we see in Genesis 2 is that Eve was created after Adam, from Adam, and for Adam to be his helper. Doesn't mean that she's inferior in value, but she does play a different role in their marriage than Adam plays. And it sounds like as you read verses 13 and 14 that Paul's giving Eve the fault for what happened in the garden. And it's her fault that sin entered the world. And I get it. That's exactly how it sounds. But again, if you zoom out and look, you look at the rest of Scripture, it fills in the story a little bit. For instance, Romans chapter 5. Paul holds Adam 100% responsible for what happened in the garden. He doesn't even mention Eve. And then when you look at Genesis chapter 3, like we did earlier, we read, it was read by Rachel. We see that God gives curses to the serpent, then to Eve, and then to Adam. It wasn't just Eve's fault. And then two weeks ago, we talked about unintentional versus intentional sin. Well, here, Eve is the one who sinned unintentionally, but Adam served intentionally. That's what Paul's saying here. And they both have the same effect. They both get kicked out and both are serious, as we saw. So this paradigm of male headship, female submission, we see it in marriage, and then it's brought in here by Paul to talk about the church. And you see Paul do this in 1 Timothy 2, and you see it in 1 Corinthians 11 too. So that means that there are two spheres in which male headship and female submission apply according to the Bible. First is marriage, husband and wife. The second is the church, male elders and the congregation. But a lot of times you will hear this passage preached 
of how men and women are to relate to one another. And it's applied to all spheres across all of life. But that's not what Paul was talking about here. It doesn't mean that women can't teach or have authority in the marketplace, the academy, or the public square. It doesn't mean that all women just submit to all men in the church. Just the elders. In fact, the men in the church who aren't elders submit in the same way to those elders as the women do. This passage also doesn't mean that all forms of leadership are off limits for women in the church. The view that I've been talking about here, when people espouse it, they take it too far. And in an attempt to take this passage seriously, they've left out others and taken them less serious. For instance, take Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is talking about this kind of a 30,000 foot view of Jesus' ministry. I'll read it to you. Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So clearly, it, just, it wasn't just Jesus and the disciples, but he had other women with him who were doing this ministry of proclaiming and bringing the kingdom of God alongside Jesus. Romans 16. Romans 16, the last chapter of Romans is one long list of greetings. And Paul gives greetings to 28 people in Romans chapter 16 who had been a part of his ministry in Rome. He wants to give them a special shout out. And nine of those 28 people are women. Let me just rattle them off for you. Phoebe is a servant. Prisca is a fellow worker. Mary is said to have worked hard for the church at Rome. Juno is called a kinsman and a fellow prisoner. Meaning she got put in prison for doing something. Something similar to Paul. Tryphena and Trivosa were workers in the Lord. Persis worked hard in the Lord. The mother of Rufus was a mother to Paul. Julia and the sister of Narius are called saints. Now notice the way that Paul talks about them. He doesn't just call them his friends. They're servants and workers and fellow prisoners. Because they were partners in the ministry for Paul. And then, if you look at all four Gospels, all four Gospels record the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, guess what? There are women. There's Mary Magdalene, there's Joanna, there's Mary the mother of James, there's Salome. And then again, there are the other women. And they're the ones who go back. To tell the men, to tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. So according to these texts, women should not just be permitted, but empowered to take roles in the church. And we desire to be that kind of church. We want to maintain what we believe is biblical, and that is male-only elders. But we for sure can do a way better job of empowering women for leadership. 
And as that happens in the coming months, it's going to make all of us uncomfortable. In fact, it's already made some uncomfortable. Some have been uncomfortable about just for a few weeks before we had COVID and we were serving communion normally. There were some who were uncomfortable about women serving in communion. There have been people since the start of our church who have been uncomfortable about neighborhood group leaders being women. As people have expressed that there's a slippery slope becoming unorthodox. For others, you'll be disappointed because the change will be too slow. The extent to which women are given leadership will not be enough for you. And for others, this whole issue of male-only elders has been something you disagreed with since you found out about it as a church. You thought, gosh, I love this church, so I found out about that. And maybe this is the time, maybe it's the time for you to continue to seek healing of how you encounter angry men in your life. I don't know what it is, but I've got a lot of hope. And I've got hope that we can be a church where women are celebrated, where elders and husbands can use their authority not to protect their fragile egos, but to liberate women. And I know it might sound like a pipe dream. It might seem unfeasible to square our current cultural moment with these biblical norms. But I'm telling you, I've got hope. And my hope is found in verse 15. Let's read verse 15. See if you can see the hope at first blush. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Can you imagine if that was the biggest font thing on our homepage? I mean, think about what this can't mean. This can't mean that Christian women don't die during childbirth. Thousands of women have died during childbirth since the beginning of the church. It also can't mean that women somehow add their standing before God as they have children. That would be works righteousness. And you know Paul's not going to have none of that. I think what verse 15 points to is that a new day is coming. See, after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they hide. God finds them. God pronounces unique curses on the serpent, then Eve, and lastly Adam. And Eve's curse, like we heard earlier, I don't know if you caught it, but Eve's curse is this, is that her pain will multiply in bringing forth children. Put that next to verse 15. Do you see the difference? What Paul's saying there is that the church is the arena where the sting of Eve's curse can begin to be reversed. And it's reversed because it's from Eve's offspring that comes the great curse reverser, Jesus. See, Jesus has come to crush Satan, who loves to incite marital and church turmoil between men and women. Jesus has come to heal us from our past hurt in the church. Jesus has come as the one who submitted to his father so that we can submit to the leadership that God's put over us. Jesus has come to help us lead in ways that bring life, both men and women. 
He's come to help us as a congregation be the congregation that can agree to disagree. Who can stack hands on essentials like the gospel and our love for one another. And may God help us be this kind of church.